session with Dr. Farid Hulak. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. The shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 3104410555. Before I get started talking about the books, I wanted to make another announcement for the cruise that I'll be doing with Commercial Travel. It's this March, March 9th through the 12th, going to Ensenada, Mexico. Should be a lot of fun. I'll be doing a few seminars. We're going to have a few other professionals on board too who will give some seminars and also we'll have some entertainment, music, things that should be a lot of fun. So I hope you'll join us um, for that cruise. Again, it's March 9th through the 12th. I'm very excited to be joining with Commercial Travel to do this. It'll be my first cruises, so I hope you'll join me there. Um, If you want to call Commercial Travel to make a reservation or get more information, you can call them at 800-800-1991 or 818-883-8100. So again, that's for it's coming March 9th, uh, the first cruise that I'm doing on my own. Very excited to be doing that and hope to see you there. All right, before I do the summary of the book from the past week, the book for this week is A First Rate Madness by Nasir Ghaemi. A First Rate Madness, Uncovering the Links Between Leadership and Mental Illness. Uh, should be an interesting book. I've not read it before, but I'm interested to read what he says about Um, how leaders somehow or sometimes can have mental illness issues and sometimes there can be a connection between those who want to lead or who take that kind of position and who also have certain types of mental illness. At least that's my assumption based on the title. Looking forward to reading that. But the book from this past week was Nonsense by Jamie Holmes. Nonsense, the power of not knowing. And a central thesis in this book is that although we have a desire for certainty, we want to know exactly what's happening, why it's happening, and what is going to happen, most of the time we don't actually know. And especially in today's age where we can be overwhelmed with so much information and knowledge and things are coming our way, we actually see that we try to know more, but we realize we know a lot less than we think. And as he argues, to be successful in the world... It's not about just knowing things or about having IQ. It's about how well we can handle ambiguity, how well we can handle not knowing. So to begin with, he talks about a psychological phenomenon called the need for closure, which is this idea that when we see something that doesn't quite make sense, something that doesn't add up or we can't quite understand, we have this really strong need to feel or get some kind of conclusion that makes sense. And people can differ on how strong they feel about this. And there's even uh, very short tests like 15-item question, uh, 15 question, 15-item questionnaire that can give you an idea of where you stand on this 
phenomenon on this characteristic, but for some people that need is very strong. So when they don't understand something or when something doesn't make sense, they quickly want to make sense of make sense of things. So for example, even in unrelated things, this has an effect. So if they present you with some story that doesn't quite make sense, let's say you read a story by Kafka and he talks about a study that used exactly that and the story isn't following the typical narrative you expect in a story and it's not quite clear what's going on. And then they ask you about something like your political views. You actually are more likely to believe or say you believe more strongly in your political views than if they had not had you read that question. So just this idea of seeing something a little bit confusing creates this need for wanting certainty, even if it's in an unrelated topic or area. So all of a sudden you think you believe in something more than you do because you've experienced or faced some type of confusion. So what we want to try to do is become more comfortable with not knowing, more comfortable with ambiguity, because that's what we're going to face in a lot of what we see in the world. And we even see this, for example, after a mass shooting, people want to know why. Why exactly did this happen? What was the reason? What was the cause? How are we going to prevent it? And yes, we should definitely talk about it, look into it, try to understand what's going on. But very often, you're not going to get a very definitive why. And this can feel unnerving. It doesn't feel very good. But if we can get better at embracing the ambiguity, embracing not knowing, we actually can do a lot better in this world rather than trying to fake certainty or to tell ourselves we really know what's going on. In the book, he goes through various areas where we can see this issue of dealing with uncertainty and ambiguity and the causes or the consequences it has. And in one chapter, he talks a lot about medical issues. And one thing that we see is because of this desire for certainty, both doctors and patients are oftentimes seeking too many tests. So we're not sure what's going on, so we order more tests. And oftentimes we think, well, what's the harm? At least now we'll know. But the data shows us that having extra tests leads to lots of hardships, even deaths sometimes. And so it's not like any test has no risk. And actually every test has a risk. So we have this idea because I want to know, I want to know exactly what's going on. Let's do every test in the book. So then, then we will know. Now, what even makes matters worse is, as he talks about in the book, sometimes the tests get it wrong or interpreting the tests isn't as clear as we would think. So you think you get an MRI and, and we're going to know what's there. Well, when they do an MRI and they show it to different doctors, different radiologists, they sometimes see different things. Some of them will miss something, others won't. Some will see something that really isn't there necessarily. And so there isn't a clear consensus exactly on what's going on. So although we'd like to think that our doctors always know, uh, even our psychologists, we'd like to think they always know, they don't always know. And they don't always have that certainty to know exactly what's going on. And we have to be willing to accept that, as painful as that can be. And actually he talks about in the book what sometimes can be more helpful is rather than doing a, another test, it can be talking to the client and try to get them to tell you more about themselves, trying to understand what they know about themselves. And, you know, even when I think of this need for certainty, the need to know what's going on, another aspect or another area we see this is when it comes to psychics. People are anxious about not knowing what's going to happen next. Should I keep dating this guy or girl or should I break up? Should I quit my job and do something new or should I move? Should I stay here? What should I do? And because we're so desperate and the anxiety that gets created from not knowing, 
we search for answers almost anywhere. And this is where we can really get taken for a ride because someone sees that we want that uh, certainty and they give it to us. And a psychic can do exactly that. You go there and they'll tell you, oh, I see what's happening and this is going to happen in your future and you should do this. And for many people, even though maybe somewhere in their mind they know this person doesn't actually know, just the idea of someone being certain gives them a relief or a reduction in their anxiety and they follow the advice or they listen to what they said or believe what they said, all just to have an answer, all just to have someone tell them, I know what is going to happen. That is very calming for us. But what's the cost of that? We're allowing someone else to decide for us and we're also not necessarily doing what's best for us and thinking about what we want to do. Is it better for you to take this job or to stay at the job you're at? It's hard for someone to tell you that 100% they know. You're going to have to make a decision that's not going to be certain and you have to accept that that's part of life. The power of not knowing means you have to embrace that you're not going to know and that no one can actually tell you. So remember that. You might be seeking for someone to tell you they know for sure, but no one really knows. Now, of course, it doesn't mean you shouldn't ask for advice from people, talk to people who maybe have similar jobs who can tell you more about what it's like. You should do your due diligence to try to understand the best that you can. But recognize that at the end of the day, there is no 100% right answer. Even when it comes to marriage, I've talked to lots of married couples and most of them will tell you when you really ask them, and maybe if their partner is around, but sometimes even in front of their partner, that it wasn't that they were 100% sure about getting married. They felt confident, they felt good about it, they felt they wanted to spend their life with this person, but there often is some doubt there because you really don't know for sure. And that's okay. We have to accept that many of the decisions we make come without knowing. Now, other things he talks about in the book that I found interesting was that this idea of wanting closure or wanting to go away from ambiguity even leads to things like stereotyping and prejudice. Because it's a lot easier for me to think all people of this group are this way rather than to recognize that every human being is individual and unique and has their own characteristics and I can't necessarily know who someone is until I get to know them. I can't just prejudge them, which is what we, where prejudice comes from. I can't just assume I know based on some characteristic. So this idea of wanting closure leads us to be a lot more closed-minded we're not as open-minded when we're meeting people, when we're taking in information. And this, of course, is going to cost us. I talked about the medical field, but even in the psychology field, you see this as well. Uh, I remember a study that showed that a lot of times psychologists, when they were given data about a patient, whether it was in real life or they were doing a study and they were reading about them, they would oftentimes come to a conclusion about a diagnosis. Okay, this person has bipolar disorder. But then even when they would get future evidence in the the study that would show that that wasn't the diagnosis, very often they would still cling to that first diagnosis that they made in their mind and unfortunately not take in the new information which should have actually made them realize the diagnosis was something else. They had missed it or they had been misled or they had judged too quickly. But because they didn't want to lose that, they froze and they didn't take in the new information. And again, these are professionals whose job it is to try to understand someone, to try to make a diagnosis. So sometimes it can actually be better to suspend your judgment and not know and accept that you don't know yet and take the information in. And of course, this can happen if you're a therapist working with clients, but also in your life in general. 
you're meeting with someone, you want to try to judge their character. Well, give it some time. You might not know them yet. And we tend to want to avoid ambiguity and just say that we know, I already know this person. Or we do this with our successes and our failures. There's a tendency to think that our successes have to do with our own hard work and good qualities and our failures have to do with bad luck or something that was out of our control. But people who've studied successes and failures, whether it's in business or personal, they find that one problem is that people tend to learn a lot more from their failures than they do from their successes. Not because they necessarily can't learn from their successes, but the perspective they bring. So when you bring the perspective that, oh, things went well, why look at it? Everything must have been okay. I did a good job. You don't realize the places where you actually maybe could have done things better. Actually, I like the analogy of looking at sports. Sometimes you see a sports team and they keep winning and they feel like, well, if we keep winning, we must be doing things right. But maybe they're not realizing they're actually making some critical mistakes that can cost them down the line or cost them in a bigger game or against a better team. And sometimes actually losing a game can be good for them bring them down to earth and make them realize, okay, maybe we were do weren't doing it all right. And we have to look at things. But if you can actually have the right perspective, you can see that, okay, even though we won, let's look back and see the mistakes we made. No matter what, even if we won a game, we obviously didn't play a perfect game. Let's see what we could have done better so that we're not missing something, that we're not letting ourselves keep making a mistake that's going to hurt us. And the same can be true in your own life or even in your own relationship. You might think, well, we haven't fought for a while, so everything's okay. But you might not realize that some things aren't okay, and let's take a look at what's going on. We don't necessarily know exactly what's happening. Uh, so I really enjoyed this book. It was very easy to read. He shares a lot of different stories and I that I found really interesting. Um, and I recommend it highly just to the, the thesis to me is interesting of recognizing the need to be okay with not knowing, to be okay with ambiguity, because most of what you experience in life is going to be ambiguous, is not going to be clear. And the better you can embrace that, uh, the better you can be in all aspects of your life, including creativity, which he talks about in the book as well. So if you haven't read it already, I highly recommend Nonsense by Jamie Holmes. And again, the book for this coming week is A First Rate Madness by Nasir Raimi. Uncovering the Links Between Leadership and Mental Illness. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. back let's go to a caller radio hamra you're on the air uh, hello dr farid yes hi you're on the air thanks for calling uh, thank you very much for having me on uh, sure. on the air uh my question is about uh avoiding challenge uh, uh personally i hate challenge or mm -hmm. in general i hate uh working for example if uh if people ask me to play Texas Holder, mm -hmm. it's going to be a torture for me because it requires um, brain activity. Mm -hmm. Even when I was a child, I would do the same old game with the same old player. Mm -hmm. And, uh, for example, if I go to Las Vegas, I, I would prefer to just sit on the machine and just press the start button because mm -hmm. it's very 
effortless. Yeah. Uh, while your father always uh, say that uh, jobs like being a cashier, that you just take money and ring the cell, are not appreciated because you're not involved in a like a uh, thinking and mental challenge. And uh, I think I have this pattern in if I go to the gym I would do the same old thing mm-hmm. and um, even the job that I do is it's super easy everybody can do that but um, I don't know how to hmm. how to break yeah okay how, how old are you uh, 33 33 okay and what is the job that you do I'm an office assistant okay do you like what you do no. Okay. Well, I mean, what you're describing is, um, at least you're aware of it, but it's this idea of doing less means you're winning, and, and if you do more, you're somehow the victim or you're, you know, losing the game. But really, it's the opposite. You know, to be happy, we know the more that you do, the better you feel. The more you give, the better you feel. The people who are giving more are happier. Usually, people think the more you take, you're going to be happier, but we don't see that. You don't feel content over time. But it seems like you have this really deeply ingrained feeling of by by doing something like you're giving of yourself in a negative way, not realizing that actually when you give of yourself, you're going to feel better and feel stronger. Just like if you exercise, if you don't use your body at all, it becomes very weak and you don't feel good. But if you actually go and work hard, like you were saying at the gym, over time, you're going to feel stronger and better and healthier and all these good things. So you feel feel worse. Um, but my guess would be that growing up, you... Well, let me ask you this. How were your parents when it came to, let's say, things like schoolwork or doing things around the house? Uh, how were my parents? Mm-hmm. In, in terms of what? In terms of, let's say, how strict were they or how much pressure did they put on you to do things like schoolwork? Oh, uh they were very indifferent and very careless. Mm, interesting. Okay. So they didn't care about what you did or didn't do. No. I remember when I was at elementary school, I was uh, I was a very good student, but mm-hmm. they never asked me, like, do you have an exam or are you prepared or those kind of questions. Mm. They, they, they yeah. didn't. So and I, I have one older brother. He's two years older than me. Okay, and what is what is he? How is he? What is he like? I think he's like me, hmm. even worse maybe. It's interesting, yeah. You know, I wasn't sure. I wanted to see what you said about your parents because sometimes people who have very strict parents can react in the way that you have because they feel that everything they're doing it's for someone else. It's not for themselves. But in your case, it seems that because there was never any reinforcement or attention, you maybe learned that it doesn't matter to make to make effort or to try hard. No one is going to appreciate or to care about it. And so you slowly stopped caring too. Um, yes, I think uh, whether I was a poor student or good student, it wouldn't make any difference. Mm-hmm. And so, but it seems that you never had that from yourself either, this feeling of, I want to work hard or do well. And oftentimes a kid needs to feel that from their parents first, get that reinforcement that it that makes them feel good about working hard and then they internalize it. But it seems like you never got that initial reinforcement from your parents. Um, 
yes, I also I blame my uh, parents because they never taught me uh, disorder and discipline. Mm-hmm. Which does help. But now, you know, I'm going to say this, that it's important for you to figure out what happened to you in your childhood, and it seems like you've done some thinking. But at the age of 33, and even if you were younger, I'd say the same thing, it's going to be time for you to take responsibility for your life. So they've affected you, of course, and that's still going to be there. And I don't want to minimize that. But I also don't want to say that they've done something and now for the rest of your life, you never have to try hard or it's not your responsibility if you don't do something. Um, when I was, when I was in Iran, um, I was kind of a lazy person. I didn't. I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here, I can say I have an active lifestyle. Okay. But it's more of a, and I'm happy about that. But it's more of a, a need rather than something very autonomous. Mm-hmm. So you think that your motivation still isn't very strong. Okay. How? Let me ask you this: When it comes to something like anxiety, do you consider yourself a very anxious person? Very. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's difficult for me to sit on the chair. I even now I'm talking to you. I have a strong eager to go and walk around the room. Mm. So I mean, you know, that could look like ADHD also, which is something to keep in mind. But you were saying you were successful in school, so maybe that's less likely. But even still, but you know, there's this idea you kept talking about. You like routines, and you're afraid of something new, also. Yes. And that's yes. that's a problem too. So you find your comfort zone, and then you stay there. So I think. Yeah, I stick to my yeah. comfort zone all the time. Right. I I could get better jobs, but I I'm even scared of like going online and applying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's like the anxiety of, of doing that, maybe a perfectionism too. You don't want to make any mistakes. Does that does that seem to describe you, someone who has perfectionism? Um, like, are you afraid to make mistakes? Okay, yeah, but it seems like there, you know there's this strong anxiety that you've you've. Most of us pick a comfort zone that leaves us unhappy and unsatisfied and unfulfilled, and we kind of keep going down that path and it seems like for you that comfort zone is to not try anything new not push yourself hard sometimes even people can feel afraid to push themselves like something is going to happen to them if they try too hard uh, or really exert themselves like they don't even see themselves as strong do you see yourself as stronger than who you've been so far do you see more potential in yourself compared to my past no even right now do you see that in your life you can do more than what you're doing Yes. Okay. What do you think stops you from actually doing something? Uh, just, I don't want to bother myself. Mm-hmm. I just want to relax Yeah. and be laid back. And uh, the other thing is uh, I'm very shy, I think. Okay. So, I mean, that can be related to anxiety also. Um, but so do you prefer to be by yourself than with other people? No. Okay, so how how does your shyness show up? Like what when are you shy in in groups and meeting new people? Um 
when I when I meet new people, mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to American, I'm very very shy and have seen myself very inferior. Mm-hmm. In with Iranian, I'm I'm not that shy. Okay. That I used before at work. I see myself very weak and obedient, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, yeah. Okay, you know it seems like in the way you describe yourself that you you've stayed in a almost like childlike state. This feeling of not wanting have to work, having other people take care of things for you if they can, or not have to push yourself. Exactly. I'm. I. I, I Exactly. I feel like a child that mm-hmm. I like to be taken care of. Yeah. Now you said even, even I think sometimes I I pretend that I uh, I'm not capable of something mm-hmm. because I know uh, I have an excuse. Right. Yeah. That's what I meant about the potential. It's almost like you try to get out of things you can do. And so you know you can do more. Now, you talked about your parents being indifferent about your school and those things, but overall, were they very loving? Were they very involved, or were they indifferent about everything? Uh, no, they were quiet, indifferent about everything. But the one thing that my father was very strict about, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I... Uh, I was a bit overweight when I was a child, mm-hmm. and my my father always uh, humiliated me and mm-hmm. wanted me to exercise mm-hmm. and go and play soccer with the boys. And um, I I am gay. I I hate every 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 kind of sport. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, always I had problem with uh, with physical exercise and sport with my mm. father. Okay, and you also mentioned being gay. Was that something... That, how did your family respond to that? Mm, I, very good, I think. Really? Okay. That, I'm happy to hear that. Um, but, uh, you know, what I'm thinking about is the way you talked about him treating you, that you never felt good. Maybe you never got that appreciation, that love that you wanted and somehow stayed in that childlike state, you still wanted to get taken care of because maybe you never felt like you got taken care of. Do you think that could be true? Like you never felt that your parents really understood you and took care of you the way you wanted to be? No, they never. They never did, yeah. My mother was always depressed and suicidal. Hmm. And, uh, yeah. Wow. So, But I, but I remember when I was, when I was uh, at high school, I always, I remember we had to take her to hospital because of suicide attempt. Wow, that that takes a big toll on a child. And of course, you were mentioning her being indifferent, and that makes sense. I mean, she really, in a way, couldn't even take care of herself, so how could she take care of you, uh, especially emotionally? So I think you were likely... Ne- neglected in that way and your father you described him as strict especially in certain ways it seems like to me you're, you're you're stuck in your childhood you're still a young boy who who wants to get taken care of you deserve to get taken care of and you never got that and still you're in that place of i want to be a boy i want to not have to try i don't want to have to work 
I want other people to take care of me because they never did. But the kind of good and bad news is that no one is going to take care of you now in that way, but that you can take care of yourself now. And you have to, to recognize that, that now it's up to you to take care of yourself, even in a way to take care of you in a good way, but to become stronger so you can be there for yourself more, to do more things so you feel better about your own life now. But there seems to be almost this rebellion of, I don't want to have to do anything. I don't want to work hard because I didn't get what I wanted as a kid and staying there. Um, have you tried going to therapy before? I, yes, I, I, uh, I see, uh, yeah, I see ther therapists every week and a Good. psychiatrist uh, once a month. And since I started taking the, the vaccine, everything changed um, my and I feel, I feel totally different. Oh, good. How long have you been going to therapy? Uh, four months. Four months? Okay. Which is a good amount of time, but in uh, therapy language, that's still fairly new. So I hope you keep going for a longer period of time, because it seems like there's a lot that you're dealing with from your childhood. With your mom being depressed and suicidal, that's going to take a big toll. And I, I think there's this way that you're definitely stuck in your childhood and still want to be a child but you're hurting yourself now you're mad at them and you're hurt by them but now you're hurting yourself by not living your own life because i'm sure you have so much more potential and there's so much more you can do but still you have the equation that the more i give the more i work somehow i'm losing somehow i'm giving away of myself rather than recognizing that the more you do the more you work the more you strengthen yourself and feel good about who you are so somewhere in your mind, you still have that feeling that I, I shouldn't work, I shouldn't do anything. But I want you to recognize that the more you work, the more you actually challenge yourself, the better you're going to feel. The only way you grow is through challenge and some kind of pain and discomfort. But the, the comfort zone you've created of a, a simple job that doesn't push you too much, that you know what to expect, a simple life in other areas is becoming comfortable for you, but very, very unhappy or making you very, very unhappy. So I hope you continue with the therapy and start to see this idea that working hard is for you. It's not for anyone else. It's to give yourself a better life. So you, you mean the result is a strong, uh, strong, in, uh, the, the strong incentive to, to suffer, to... Well, I wouldn't I use the word suffer. Yeah, but suffer sounds like a, a you know a really negative word. By challenging and pushing yourself, there's discomfort, there is some pain, but it's not suffering. You actually will see that it's it's what you want. You're suffering right now. The way I hear your life, you're suffering in what you're doing. You might think it's not suffering because you don't have to do anything, but you know there's this story of heaven and hell, and the person dies, and the, he doesn't know if he's going to heaven or hell, but then. He finds up and he wakes up in this beautiful bed and then people, servants are coming to him, bringing him food, whatever he wants. And the TV is on and they bring him anything he wants. And he's like, oh my gosh, I must have been a good person. I'm in heaven. But then after a few days of just having everything being done for him, he says, oh, I want to get up and do this and say, oh, no, no, you can't. We're going to take care of it for you. And then he starts to realize he's actually in hell because he's not allowed to do anything. He's not allowed to be productive. He's not allowed to have his own experience. Everything is done for him. 
So we have this idea that if everything is done for us and we do nothing, we're going to be so happy and that's heaven and that's the best feeling. But we actually realize what makes people feel good, what makes them feel content about their life is doing something, is actually working hard, is actually working hard about something that means something to them, that they get to use their talents to the best of their ability and they feel a challenge. Without challenge, your life is not going to feel like anything. It's going to feel like you're just living each day to then get to the next day, which is how your life sounds to me right now, which is why I say I think you're suffering now. And if you actually work harder, you're going to feel better about yourself and better about your life. Uh, true. The, the, the time that I realized something is wrong, exactly when your father said that the way that heaven is described, if mm-hmm. people people are put in such a perfect situation, after a few months, they would die or commit suicide. Yeah, exactly. And also when I say American, they always want to do things new. They want to enhance things that they want to do. I thought, oh, something, I'm very, very, very different from these people. Mm -hmm. When I was in Iran, kind of, it could be a norm, but here it's not accepted. Hmm. Well, yeah, I think, you know, there's a few things to look at. One is I think you have a lot of anxiety, which makes you almost get preoccupied with routine and you're afraid of change and you're afraid if you can handle it, but you dislike that comfort. But then also this idea that you don't want to work and by working, you're you're doing it for someone else or someone else should do it for you. But I want you to look at your life and realize it's just about you. You're in control of your life. You're the one who has to take care of yourself. You're the one who has to do more. And it's only you that can make it better. Now, of course, you can get support and help. I hope you continue going to therapy. I hope you reach out to friends and all of those things. But you're going to have to be your own hero. You're going to have to be the one that saves the day for yourself. And the only way it's going to happen is from challenge and hard work and doing more, not finding ways to do less. Correct. And also, for example, I I like learning new things, Mm -hmm. but if I do it, for fun, I would do it. But if something is mandatory, I kind of... Well, yeah, I think that kind of goes it. back to this idea that you have, you also have some issue with authority or some outside figure because you have a lot of anger and issues with your parents. You have this idea, like, I think that makes perfect sense. If you're learning for you, it feels good. If you're in a class and someone says, read this chapter, you don't want to do it or you want to find a way out of it. Because it feels like the authority is telling you, not you. And I think that's the thing. You haven't internalized this own authority within yourself that I have to work hard for me or do things for myself. That if someone else tells me to do it, if it's the right person, it's okay for me to take their advice or to follow what they're saying. But the issues you have with your parents are going to lead to those issues with authority or or doing it on your own. But I hope you continue to therapy. I've actually gone over uh, the commercial break, so I do have to go. But I hope you'll call again and, and tell me in a few months that you've been doing a lot more and working harder for yourself and realizing that working hard is good for you, not that you're giving away of yourself. Uh, oh, uh, okay, thank you very much. Sure. Uh, can I say something more? Or I don't know. Just, if you can, just very quickly. Uh, just uh, one thing I feel about uh, my uh, therapist here, and I had the same experience in Iran, after a while, I feel like uh, it turns like to a friendly talk, like like coworkers in break room, rather than patient and doctor mm. relationship. Uh, I feel bad that they see me as their friend who 
wants to talk about their life. Well, you know, I mean, it's hard for me to, and I try to make it brief because, like I said, we got to go to the break. But, you know, therapy can be very unique kind of experience. It shouldn't feel just like friends talking, but some therapists, they can make you feel very comfortable and make you feel that there isn't this big power dynamic like I am the powerful therapist and you are the weak patient and I'm going to fix your problems. Um, so they might have this more we're equal kind of a relationship, which can be okay. Maybe it doesn't feel right for you. What I would say is if you can bring that up with your therapist, talk about it because this could even be related to some of your issues with your parents. Maybe you want an authority or maybe you want to get uh, upset of the authority. I'm not exactly sure, but I would say if you can bring that yeah, up I in your therapy. Yeah, bring. I would say bring that up to your therapist the next time you see him or her. I would really recommend that. Bring that up because that could actually be part of what you're dealing with and some of your issues. So the more open you are with your therapist, the better it is. But even if you're unhappy about some aspect of the therapy, I'd say bring it up. So so try to do that next time you see your therapist. Bring up this issue and see, see what comes about it, okay? Oh, okay. And he always insists on reading the book of The Code of the Extraordinary Mind. I don't, I don't know that book, um, but I don't know. She's recommending it to you. It's not a bad idea if you want to check it out, but I, I don't know about that book. So okay. it's hard for me to say. Thank you Thanks so much. Thanks for calling. For Wish you all the best. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Lock. We will be right back. back you know we hear this saying a lot making lemonade out of lemons if life gives you lemons make lemonade and um a lot of cliches like that uh we can kind of gloss over think what you know they're kind of just fun to say but don't mean much but i had experience that i think relates to that last night so last night i was driving home from fresno california so it's like three and a half hours away from los angeles i wasn't actually driving my cousin pega was driving and her husband Kia was in the front seat and we were chatting and having a nice conversation and we we're about 125 miles away from LA so we'd started I don't know an hour and a half or so and then the car stopped working and we didn't know what was going on now my cousin Pega had just gotten this car three days before so she was kind of confused and frustrated but all of a sudden the engine stopped working and some um, message error message came on the computer screen of the, the car and said something drivetrain not working whatever it was we pulled off to the side and we were kind of in the middle of nowhere which made matters worse so we thought we need a tow and then we also need our, somehow to get ourselves home and we were on the side of the road um, for something like two and a half hours more than two hours um, calling different tow companies calling the car company and it was Definitely not a pleasant experience. It was kind of frustrating. But what I really enjoyed was that the three of us, for the most part, were laughing and joking and kind of we'd laugh about how what it's like. And um, actually, Pega's husband, Kia, 
was really funny in, in my eyes, and she was laughing too, but he would almost talk about how great this experience was, kind of exaggerating it, but he kept actually even saying, you know, life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Like, I'm with you too. This is great. Enjoying myself. And she was saying, you know, I get what you're saying, but I'm not ready for that yet. I'm not ready to laugh about this yet. And she was kind of laughing, but also getting frustrated, but it was all very playful and fun. But it was this experience of really we didn't know what to do. We didn't really have any choices. We were too far to walk anywhere. We were really in the highway. We pulled the car over and pushed the car so we were in a safe place and we just tried to make the best of it. And we talked a bit and we laughed and we also had to call lots of different companies and places to finally figure things out. Now, the kind of funny thing was um, we thought the engine wasn't working and the car wouldn't start, but Pega realized as she looked at the gas gauge and how many miles she had gone that the gas gauge said she had over a quarter gal, a quarter tank left, but she had driven like 400 something miles on that full tank and she had never put gas in the car because it was a brand new car. And then she had this realization, what if the gas gauge doesn't work? So it says I have over a quarter of a gallon left or a quarter of a tank left, but I'm out of gas. And you know, lo and behold, one of the tow trucks, we finally said, instead of bringing us a tow that can tow us all the way to LA, just bring some gas. So finally AAA arrived, we put some gas in the car and it worked. And we went to a gas station, filled up and we went home. So, um, and it was funny, we kind of joked about how we talked about getting gas in Fresno before we left. And that was Pega's idea to, to go. And I actually was saying the same thing, let's go for a little bit and then get gas. And so because of all that, we had this experience. So we couldn't change what was going on at that point. Um, and sometimes that happens in life. You can't change a negative experience. But what we can change or what we always have power over is the attitude we bring to a situation. And so that's something that I thought was kind of interesting of what we experienced last night. And, you know, today I was a little bit more tired because by the time I got home it was after 12 o'clock and by the time I got sleep it was about 1. So I was a little tired. So obviously there was an inconvenience. But at that moment there was nothing we could do. We couldn't change the situation um, we were in the middle of nowhere. We we're trying to figure it out. Once we did everything we could, then we made sure our attitude was positive. Now, when I say that, I also can hear myself and I'm not saying that even when you're really upset, tell yourself you're happy, or even when you're really frustrated, pretend like you're not, because that doesn't work. And that's something that sometimes people try to do. They say, well, it's good to have a positive attitude. So even if I'm really mad, just pretend like you're happy or tell other people you're happy or even tell yourself that you're happy. Um, and I'm not about that. I think you really have to be in touch with your feelings and recognize what's going on and be aware and even express that. But in this moment, we all, I felt pretty genuine. Yes, I was tired. Yes, it was an inconvenience. So it's not that, um, I would prefer that. And we kind of joked about when Kia kept saying how good it was. And I was like, next time we're driving, we're just going to pull over to the side of the road and wait for two and a half hours and then start driving again. So it wasn't that something you'd actually wish upon yourself or anyone else. But with what happened, we tried to make the best of it. We had a good time. We connected. We communicated. And really, it is a memory that we'll always have, even though Kia was, was kind of saying it in a more joking way, but he really meant it. We'll always remember that time when we drove and we were on the side of the road for two and a half hours and, you know, still got home. Everything was okay. And, and it all worked out in the end. So it was an idea that came to mind because Kia kept saying, life gives you lemons, make lemonade. And, uh, you know, who else would I rather be around? You know, he was with his wife and with me, it was very sweet, but it was a nice feeling. And this idea that you can have control over your attitude or try your best to be aware of what you bring to the situation because you can make it a lot more pleasant or you can make it more miserable. I definitely can imagine being with two other people 
And if they got really frustrated and negative, it would have been a, a torture session, two and a half hours in that kind of a, uh, you know, environment. And at the beginning, they were frustrated, which understandably so. But after a while, that kind of dissolved and became much more calm and pleasant. So uh, Kia and Peg, I don't know if they're listening, but I'll have them listen to this. But it was really nice spending that two and a half hours with you. And I appreciated seeing a, a newly couple, newly married couple. They're about, I think, three years uh, in. Uh, so good together and being able to enjoy whatever life gives them. And really, that's something that I think is important for couples to keep in mind. Of course, it applies to everyone in general, but especially when it comes to marriage, you're going to have ups and downs, frustrating experiences. You're going to go through stresses together. It's even good when you're getting to know each other to go through stressful situations together, like traveling and other things to see how your partner responds. But oftentimes we can't take away the stress. We can take with us the attitude and approach we want to have to that situation. That is in our control. And if we bring a positive attitude, if we bring um, some aspect of understanding and saying, hey, this is what's happening, but let's try to make the best of it, you're going to feel a lot better and your partner will be appreciative. But if you bring a negative attitude to that same situation, it could turn into a horrible night. So uh, here's to a good night that I had with my cousin and her husband last night. And thank you, Pega, for getting me home safely. Um, and just remember that you can always turn lemons into lemonade when things don't go your way and inevitably they will in life. You can turn it into a positive. All right. We've reached the end of tonight's show. Again, the, a reminder, the book of the week is a first rate madness by Nasir Ghaimi. I'll be talking it on the show next Monday. Thank you to Amir here in the studio, studio and all the callers and listeners out there. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night. Thank you.